for listening to the podcast of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Our church seeks to embody three values, maturity, multi-ethnicity, and missionality as we live on mission in South Louisville and beyond. In this series, we will take a deeper look at our value of multi-ethnicity, seeking to further understand how God has called us to reveal and exemplify the gospel while celebrating his multifaceted kingdom. Well, good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody. My name is James Fields, service lead pastor here at Soldier Church Carlisle. And it's indeed a great pleasure to be with you this morning as we continue in our series uh, with uh, talking about um, gospel uh, multi-ethnicity um, and what that entails. So um, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll be looking at two passages of scripture today. Um, found in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 4, we'll look at verses, uh, start at verse 17. And then we'll jump down to verses 21 through 23. So Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 17. And then we'll jump down to verses 21. Through 23. And it reads as follows It says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. Verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two others, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them, among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains and demon, the demon possessed the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapitus, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this great opportune time that we have to be able to study your word. Pray that as you, as always, Lord, you would hide me behind your cross, help your people to see you and not me. Pray, Father, that you, God, would allow us to hear words that will come from you. Encourage, convict, God, challenge our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we be more conformed to the image of Jesus even today. Thank you for the great opportune time to hear your preached word um, on this beautiful line, on this beautiful day. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be the greatest teacher among us. We need you to give us clarity and understanding in all things and all ways. And lastly, but definitely not least, I ask God, as always, that you take my little and make much of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Maturity, multi-ethnicity, missionality. If you are joining us for the first time. We're currently going through a vision series that is in focus on our core value of multi-ethnicity. 
And in regards to multi-ethnicity, this is what we mean. It means that we desire to reveal and to exemplify the gospel while celebrating God's multifaceted kingdom. Now, I've said this about two or three times for the last couple of weeks. So I think you guys, can you say it with me? Can we try it? Can we try it together? If you don't, if you don't know the words, you can just stop talking and just let me speak and I can just cover over you. But are you ready? We're going to say it. So we, we're going to do it together on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. We desire to reveal and exemplify the gospel while celebrating God's multifaceted kingdom. Last week, we looked at our desire to celebrate. And uh, we talked about what is it? We asked the question, what does it mean to celebrate? And we simply said this, that we celebrate God by remembering three things. We remember the gospel story. We remember why we should celebrate in the first place. Number two, we remember the story that God tells. Last week, remember, we looked at the story of uh, Jesus calling or the banquet host calling a, a feast uh, for people and some people rejecting that call to that feast. And then lastly, um, we talked about the story we tell about God um, in those three ways. This week, we'll explore and discuss what it means to understand God's multi-faceted kingdom. Now, before we get into it, I need to be upfront with you guys. We're going to do this in probably a little different way than you're probably anticipating. When you hear this word multifaceted, you're probably thinking that I am going to come from a, a place or a context that is talking about the diversity and the beauty of God's kingdom. We will get to that. But before we get to that, what I, I, what I want to do is I want to ask this question. How can this all be? I don't want to just look at the end result of what the kingdom of God looks like. I want to ask the question, how can this be? How can God's kingdom be multifaceted? When I say multifaceted, I mean multi-ethnic, multi-racial, even multi-generational, where you have different age ranges that consist and that entail God's kingdom. If you want to know what I'm talking about, Take a look around you even now. Look around and see the different cultures, the different ethnicities, the different ages that are represented even on this lawn right now. So God's multi-faceted church is seen through the beauty and is seen through the majesty that only God can build himself. And we understand God's multi-faceted kingdom in three ways. We understand it by knowing three things. One is this. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Number two, that the kingdom of God reflects the nature of its king. And number three, the kingdom of God is diverse and inclusive. You know, throughout this week, there's been a question that I've been thinking through time and time again, looking at everything that's happening in our culture. And this is a question that I've come to and I've been asking God is this. Can, doc, can God truly redeem this culture? Can God redeem this culture? And if so, how is he planning on doing it? You know, the most offensive verse in the Bible is the very first verse that the, Bi that the, that the uh, Bible actually states. The very first state of verse that the Bible states in the very beginning, Genesis 1-1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, you may be wondering why, why this is so offensive, why this may be the most, or why I consider this to be the most offensive verse in the Bible. Well, I consider it the most offensive verse in the Bible because Genesis 1-1 presumes God. It presumes him making a choice to create ex nihilo, which in Latin means out of nothing. It presumes that our world has a creator. It presumes that our world has an intelligence design, that it just didn't come together by cosmic reasons or just by abstract and abnormal causes. It presumes that our world was not created by accident, not like the Big Bang Theory that most of us learned about in school. It presumes that our world is not evolving into a higher, more intelligent life form that Darwinism proclaims, but it actually states the opposite. It states that sin has corrupted and is corrupting our world, but yet it has not been destroyed only by the grace of God. Simply put, Genesis 1-1 presumes the sovereignty of God, that in the beginning, before there was anyone or anything there was God. And because God is in the beginning, God had the choice to make creation. It's a good reminder for us that just as God's sovereign reign, excuse me, excuse, just as God sovereignly reigns above the cosmic waters at the beginning of creation, it's a good reminder for us that his sovereignty reigns over the chaos of our own lives here today. It's a good reminder for us that individually and collectively, that the same God who created everything out of nothing is able to do the same thing here today. It's a good reminder that God is uh, able to create when he's good and ready to create. I love this because it reminds me of that great parable in Luke 18 of the persistent widow. You know about that, that parable of that woman who was crying out to the judge day and night. She was pleading him to him for justice that she, he would respond well to whatever cause that she was putting out to that judge. And Jesus in that parable, he says, listen, he says, if that woman is able to cry out day and night to a judge for justice, will not and should not the children of God do the same. You see, church, we persist in prayer not to change God's mind. We persist in prayer not to convince God to be good. But we persist in prayer to align ourselves with the, to remind ourselves, to align ourselves with the knowledge and character of the goodness of God. Prayer is not for God. Prayer is for us. It's a good reminder also. Genesis 1-1 is also a good reminder that this world is not how God created it to be. And this should be good news for you. This should be good news for you because this reminds us that all of the sorrow and all of the pain and all of the tears were not designed by God. All of the confusion and all of the heartache and all the division that we see within our culture and our world right now was not authored by God. 
It reminds us that all of the injustice and all of the murder and all of the fighting is not the plan of God. But here's the beauty of it. That although God knew in creating this world in Genesis 1-1, the most offensive verse in all of the scripture, although God knew that he was going to create the world, he also knew that the very ones he created was going to turn their back on him. But yet he created. And we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, why God? Why would you do that? Well, the answer is because he is sovereign. I love what 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 25 says. It says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. You might be thinking right now, why, 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 Pastor Fields? Why would God create a world knowing that Adam and Eve might mess it all up? Well, because he's sovereign over sin. Remember Galatians 4.4? 4? It says it this way, at the appointed time, or another way of saying it, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. You might be wondering, why would God allow all these injustices? Well, because despite any, any injustice that we may see or experience in this world, our God is still sovereign over every circumstance. I love how Colossians 1, 15 through 17 puts it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him and before him all things and excuse me and before him are all things and by him all things hold together. Another way of saying that is Jesus and, and, and Jesus um, is the author of it all. He's the creator of it all. I love how Psalm 99 verses one through five says it. The psalmist writes it this way. He says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. This word holy is not just a word that is just thrown out for anybody. Holy means that God is set apart. He is not like us. He is different from us. He is set apart from us, and he is other than us. But yet, he pursues us. Look with me. At Matthew 17, to remind ourselves of our first point, the kingdom of God is here. It says, from then on, from then on means when John the Baptist was arrested. When John went into prison, Jesus went to preaching. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Now, before we go any further, we have to define these terms. What does the kingdom of God mean? I love what one commentator says. He puts it this way. The gospel is not simply an invitation. It's a declaration, an announcement. The time has come for God to be your king. He's reclaiming and restoring this world. Repent of all your petty kingdoms and believe this good news. It's a declaration of war against the competing claims of authority. And it's invasion of God's power and rule in our lives. Remember, a kingdom is where what is where what the king has, excuse me, is the kingdom is where what the king wants done gets done. So God's kingdom is where and what God wants to get done. It's a good reminder for us that just as Genesis 1-1, when, Jesus, when God himself uh, entered into the conversation and, and he presumed himself upon history, he didn't ask anybody for permission. He didn't, he didn't give explanation of his existence. He just simply said, in the beginning, God created. And just as God has imposed himself into the very existence that we know, Jesus also has come. And he has imposed himself within the world and within dynamics and within structures, proclaiming the truth that he is king. I love this because it reminds me that justice means inclusion and radically so. Let me define my term so nobody's confused. When I say the term justice, I'm talking about rendering to, one, to one's rights as an image bearer of God. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about rendering to someone as being made in the Mago day, being made in the image and likeness of God, being made with intrinsic value and worth as a created being of God, their father, regardless if they believe in him or not. We all have intrinsic worth before God. Amen. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King and others organized the Birmingham campaign, which was an effort to raise awareness about the struggle of civil rights. Earlier that year, civil rights leaders engaged in a series of nonviolent sit-ins, which promoted a circuit court judge to issue an, an injunction against parading, demonstrating, boycotting, uh, or even picketing in the city. Dr. King and his companions indicated that they would not comply with the ruling. And as a result of his continued demonstrations, King was ultimately arrested. While incarcerated, he received a copy of a local newspaper that included an open letter written by eight local white pastors. In that letter, in that letter titled A Call for Unity, that eight clergymen encouraged black leaders to be patient in their struggle for civil rights and to work within the courts to no negotiate change. They wrote, and I quote, we recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, Dr. King responded directly to these clergymen, Bemoaning the lack of support from the white moderates of Birmingham, moderates represented by these clergymen, King wrote the following. He says, I have almost reached the unregrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor 
or the Ku Klux Klan leader, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is a presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who believes he can sit, set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. King continues to, to talk about this letter and to write in this letter. He says these words, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute understanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright re rejection. See, we can fight for justice and we can fight for our brothers and, seen, brothers and sisters being seen as equal image bearers before God and the king because Jesus first did it for us. Because he came into this world Preaching a kingdom within a kingdom. Now, I, I want you to understand and hear me on this. When they crucified Jesus, they didn't just crucify him because he was a good teacher. They didn't just crucify him because he was an awesome preacher. They crucified him because he came and, and was continually preaching Matthew 4, 17. Repent because the kingdom of God has come near. And if the kingdom of God has come near, then our response has to be two in two ways. One, we have to listen to what the king has to say. And then two, we have to respond in what he has said. I love this because it reminds us that just as the gospel was sent out in the Roman world as an important announcement related to a king, we also have a good message. We also have the message of hope to give to a dying world. We have the hope that the gospel of God's kingdom is the life with God under the rule of, of our king. And this life is announced by Jesus and made through Jesus. So all people, simply put, the kingdom of God is the good life in Jesus. It's the good life in Jesus. Notice with me also that the kingdom is just not here. Notice with me second with our second point, the kingdom of God should reflect or does reflect the nature of his king. That the nature of Jesus, that who he is, that a kingdom will always reflect the nature of his king. This is why we see this great dichotomy in Acts chapter 2. Where Acts chapter 2, you see two simultaneous views of the body of Christ. You see the physical body of Christ ascending into heaven after he has come and lived and died and preached the gospel and gave an example and gathered his disciples around him. He then leaves and departs into heaven. But that's not the only picture that you see of the body of Christ. You also see the body of Christ not just ascending, you also see the body of Christ remaining. 
You see, those who have believed in the name and cause of Jesus, those who have followed and listened to his teachings, those who have adhered to the ways and the commands that he has preached and that he has brought to attention to this broken world. You see the men and women there on earth as Jesus is ascending. This gives us two really great hopes, (laughs) hopefully this morning. That just as Jesus right now is alive and is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, praying for us, pleading for us. In the same reality that we see the risen Christ being resurrected, we also see the body of Christ remaining. That the body of Christ is remaining to remind this broken world that this, that God's kingdom is not dead, that it is alive and that it is active And that it is here. And just as Jesus came in the beginning of Matthew's gospel to proclaim and to talk about and to preach the kingdom of God. So we too also preach and proclaim God's kingdom. I love James 1, 26 and 27 because for me, this reminds me of how the kingdom of God should reflect the nature of this king. I love what James says here. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious... Without controlling his tongue, he, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Listen to James' words here. James, the brother of Jesus. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I love this. I love this because <laughs> James makes it real real. Plain and simple for us, that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I can imagine in my mind's eye how James himself saw Jesus embodying the command that he's given in in James chapter 1. Think about it. Jesus being the oldest son of Mary born of a virgin, born through the power of the Holy Spirit, sinless in every way. I can imagine James looking back to the life of Jesus, Jesus spending 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry, 30 years of going to synagogues, hearing men preach in a way that he know that he's better, he can preach in a better way, eating food, that may, may, may not be up to his liking or his tasting, but yet still rejoicing and yet still remaining sinless. I can imagine James thinking back to Jesus and seeing how he helped his mom out as a widow, as a woman who more than likely lost her husband, Joseph. And as the eldest of all the children, I can imagine her. I can imagine him. Thinking about Jesus looking after orphans and widows in their distress. I can imagine him reminding himself of how Jesus in his 30 years of preparation and even in his three years of ministry was kept himself unstained from the world. I can imagine him looking and and, and being reminded of Jesus who showed pure and undefiled religion before God the Father each and every day of his life. And what James comes to is James comes to a reality that, listen, 
<laughs> if you want to be like, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, then you have to reflect the characteristic of the king. And the king's main priority is that pure and undefiled religion is to look after orphans and widows. Another way of saying this is look after the vulnerable ones. Look after those who can't look after themselves. Look after those who don't have what you have or can't, can't get the things that you can get. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. And also to keep oneself unstained from the world. This aspect of world is the evil world system that we live in, the broken world that sin has created. It tells us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. This is a hard thing to do in our, car, our current context. It is. It's a very hard thing. It's a hard thing to keep yourself unstained from the world, to not to buy into worldly philosophies, worldly ideologies, or even worldly thoughts regarding to Anything from politics to education to how we raise our children. But James keeps it simple as he always does. And he tells us that, that, listen, what I need you to do is I need you to look after those who can't look after themselves in their distress. And any gospel that does not call us to look after orphans and widows, any gospel that calls us to look after ourselves before the, the benefit or before the advancement of another is a false and contrary gospel. Church, I pray that as we grow, we will continue to be a church that will look after orphans and widows. I pray that we will be a church that can learn how to see and to support and to love the most vulnerable in our society and not neglect them. I pray and I hope that we can be those who keep ourselves unstained from the world and not being marked up by the world so much that you can't differentiate between a, if you are part of the world or not. And how can we do this or why should we do this? We can do this and simply because the kingdom of God is diverse and inclusive. Look with me in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It says these words, As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them. I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. I love this because it reminds me of John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer there. When Jesus spoke these words to his father, he looked up to heaven and he said these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh 
so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. I love this because it reminds us that Jesus himself has authority over all flesh. That there's not a single person in this world who is not able to be saved by the, by the blood of Jesus. That there's not a person who is so far gone. There's no person who is, who is so, um, so depri- deprived of resources. There's no person who is too rich or too wealthy. There's no person who is too far to the left or too far to the right that cannot be saved by God. I love how Origen talks about this in regards to the kingdom of God. He says these words. He says the Christ of God shows his superiority to all rulers by entering into their various various providences and summoning men out of them to be subject to himself. You know how I know that Jesus is real? You know how I know that Jesus is all powerful? Because he saved a wretch like me. He saved a wretch like me out of my brokenness, out of my prejudice, out of of my hatred. He saved me. And if Jesus, if God can come in and presume himself upon the very existence of the world in Genesis 1-1, and if Jesus can float in in Matthew and plant himself into human history and preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, if all these things can happen, if they can come into our reality and make changes, effectual change, real change, change that I'm watching even as I look at you right now. If, if, if he can do that, then he has to be all-powerful. He has to be sovereign. He has to be who he says he is. Do you hear what Origen just said? He said, Christ shows his superiority by coming into this world's kingdom, this sin-filled world, this broken, this broken world, and he brings restoration. That's how I know the gospel is real. I know the gospel is real because I see it through you. Last week after church, I had a great opportunity to see this in action. I had a member, a deacon, was uh, at church where you are, and someone was coming up uh, this street, this very street right here. And this deacon and this man end up talking and talking about the gospel and praying and, and, and talking about the things of the kingdom. They talked for like 20 minutes, maybe even a half hour after church. As I was leaving this building, I saw the deacon and this man sitting in that very parking lot talking and praying with tears running down this young man's eyes. His name is William. And I looked at the deacon. I said, hey, what what you going to do? What's happening? He explained to me the situation. William, the night before, was in a drug house. Surrounded by men and women who hated him. He knew that. He had, a, he had a shake in his pocket to protect himself. He talked about the vile things that were going on in the house. Sexual morality, drugs, profanity, all these things were going on around him. And William, he was in the room weeping and crying out to God. And at 3 a.m. in the morning, he decided to call his grandma. And he called his Christian grandma, and she prayed for him at 3 a.m. But you know what else she said? 
boy, don't call me again at 3 a.m. <laughs> Wait till the morning. William, by the sovereignty and by the goodness of God, somehow, some way, ended up walking up the street while we were having church. He met the deacon. The deacon prayed for him. Me and the deacon took him to the, the St. Mary's Hospital to allow him to start the process of recovery. I'm telling you, I don't just know. I don't want to be a church that just knows about God. I want to. I want to be a church that knows the power of God, that sees Him work, coming into neighborhoods, changing lives, turning lives upside, upside down, or better yet, right side up. Our God is not a God that we play with. He's a God whom we worship, and He's a God who enters our lives if we want Him to or not. He is a God who resumes himself upon him in his history. In the beginning, God created. There's no explanation. There's no conversation. God just says, I am and I created. Deal with it. And sometimes in our lives, let, let, me, let me just talk to you and put it in layman terms. Sometimes in our lives, we have to be okay with God being God and are we not being God. The problem comes when we want to be God. And we want to tell God how to be God. But you can't do that because God has presumed himself into human history. God has sent his son to, to, into the very context of the world power at the time, Rome, to proclaim and to preach the kingdom of God is here. And if the kingdom of God is here, then it deserves our response. It deserves our response. Now, I'm talking to someone right now. I don't know who I'm talking to. But you have to allow and you have to have a response, not to me. You have to have a response to the king. What is your response? I pray and I ask that your response would simply be this. Repent. Repent. Repent from the ways in which you have tried to control God. Repent from the ways that you have tried to control others to be made in your image and not into the image of God. Husbands, I'm talking to us. I'm talking to us. Your wife is not your personal project to make into the image that you want her to be. God has called you to, to love and to cherish that woman so that she will look more like Jesus and not more like you. Amen. Wives. I know my mom used to say, the husband's the head, but the woman's still the neck. I'm sure y'all probably heard that. You can laugh at that. That's okay. But wives, it's not your job. It's not your job to make your husband into a man that you want him to be. It's your job to love and to support that man so that he can be the man that God has created to be in the image and likeness of Jesus. Sometimes in our lives, we have to deconstruct our expectations so that we can see the expectations that God has for us. Our expectations are too low. They're too self-centered. It's all about us. It's all about what I want, what I think, how I feel, where I go, where I don't go. And the kingdom of God has come into our world to tell us it's not about you. It's all about me. It's all about God. And then because it's all about God, we worship and we listen and we submit to him. We see the beauty of the kingdom mainly through 
whom Jesus surrounded himself with. I don't know if you ever took a time to just sit back and look at the disciples that he brought together. But you know how we talk about unity, not uniformity? His disciples were just that. They were a a hodgepodge of people who were brought together. You had on one end of the spectrum, you had John the Beloved, who who was most socially, maybe most closely associated to the Indiogram number two, which is about the helper. Anybody, any twos out here, Indiogram two? No, no, Indiogram two? Oh, thank you, thank you. Okay, two, the helper. You guys are awesome. You love to help. You love to come alongside people. You love to, to be of help and to be a service. But the problem is sometimes you can do that to your own detriment, right? You serve so much that you get exhausted and you, uh, you, you're not able to take care of your own needs because you're so busy taking other, care of other people's needs. And that's okay. That's okay. But John is a much like the helper. In the same group of men, you also have Peter. You also have Peter who's like the loyalist. So you have that person who's right next to Jesus, who is always helping and always wanting to help. And you have the person who is Peter, who's the loyalist and saying, Jesus, I will never betray you. Uh, Maybe only if this would happen. (laughs) Only if this would happen, Jesus, maybe it will come up. You have Matthew, who was like me, the peacemaker, number nine, who was a friend of the Roman Empire, a tax collector who taxed his own people to the detriment of his people. And then you have a man named Simon the Zealot who was a part of a Jewish sect that pretty much was rebelling against anyone and anything who would bow the knee or show any type of of favoritism or any type of um, allegiance to Rome. You have these wide dichotomies. Why do you have this this, uh, peacemaker named Matthew and this Modern-day terrorist named uh, Simon the Zealot is because Jesus is all about unity, not uniformity. And unity means this. Unity means that we find our unity in the oneness of purpose. And in his grouping, you see the diversity. You see the beauty. You see that Jesus is not just trying to make these men be who God has not created them to be. But Jesus has come alongside them to help them to realize how God has called them in their strengths, in their weaknesses, how he's called them to look more like God through through the person of Jesus. We see the kingdom of God's diversity and inclusion, not just in his discipleships. We also see it in his diverse Diverse church. Look with me in Revelation 7. You know this verse. We've said it a couple of times. After this, I looked and there was a great, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. I love this because it reminds us that at the cross, the ground is level. At the cross, the ground is level. At the cross, Jesus makes room for all people and every sin. Everyone has the opportunity to be forgiven. Everyone. Especially those who wronged us. I don't know if you know the story about Frederick Douglass, but it's a remarkable story, and I want to share it with you as I close. Frederick Douglass was born a slave in Talbot County, Maryland. He had very, very little access to education. 
Douglas first learned the alphabet from his plantation owner's wife who taught him the alphabet. And Douglas furthered his education by teaching himself in secret to read and to write. As a slave, he was a free thinker and even taught other slaves how to read and to write, which did not go unnoticed by his slave masters. He endured beatings and psychological abuse. He was constantly shuffled from one owner to the owner, but Douglas knew he was made for more. In 1838, Douglas successfully escaped slavery by fleeing to a safe house in New York City. However, in 19, excuse me, 1848, 10 years after his daring escape, Douglas wrote an open letter to his former slave master. In the letter, he asked for information about his, the whereabouts of his grandmother and siblings. He also recounted the horrible treatment he had received. And he, poignant, he pointedly asked how one human could treat another human, a fellow image bearer of God, with such violence and hatred. And he didn't stop there. Douglas called the man to repentance. Here's the words of Douglas. He says, I will not bring, I will now bring this letter to a close. I intend to make you as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, as a means of concentrating public attention on the system and deepening their horror of trafficking in the souls and bodies of men. I shall make use of you as a as a means of exposing the character of the American church and clergy and as a means of bringing the guilty nation with yourself to repentance. In doing this, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof from which you would be more safe than mine. And there is nothing in my house which you might need for your own comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other I am a fellow man, but I am not your slave. It's a good reminder for us and good example for us to see the beauty and the majesty of the cross. As that even at the foot of the cross, we can look to those who have wronged us. We can look to those who have been disrespectful to us. We can look to those who don't deserve the grace that we deserve or we think we deserve and still remind them of the goodness of God. I love this because there was nothing that Frederick Douglass, he had no responsibility to write back to this man. But in Frederick Douglass writing back to this man, it was not just about Frederick Douglass. It was about Frederick Douglass wanting to see the man who had enslaved him be set free from the slavery and for the system and to the false gospel that called image bearers of God as being people or ones to be owned. The gospel is here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God reflects the nature of his king. And lastly, the kingdom of God is diverse and inclusive. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you that you have intercepted and you've come in. God, you're not just far off. You're not just over in heaven looking down at us. But God, you have given us 
your Holy Spirit, you've embodied us and giving us your spirit to do the work of continuing to preach and proclaim the gospel of repentance. God, we pray that if there are any areas of our lives where we are not lined up, that we are not aligned with the kingdom that you have proclaimed, Father, we ask that you would give us the strength to, re to repent, not just to confess our wrongs, God, but to turn away, to walk away. God, I thank you that your gospel is so inclusive and it's so big that it can include both those who have been oppressed and even the oppressor. And God, we ask for both to be freed by the knowledge and the beauty of who Christ King, our King Jesus is. We ask, Lord, that you would go before us and make us straight. And even, Lord, as we partake of this communion, we ask, Lord, that you will unite us as your people for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.